Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. guys we are back with another episode an episode from the southwest i am i am thrilled to to bring you guys this guest he's uh he's an awesome guy you know i wish we had touched a little more on photography but maybe that just means uh we can have him back out for a, another episode and we can dedicate that to kind of uh outdoor photography but chase we had fred bohm on the podcast and tonight was an, an exceptional podcast yeah he definitely uh, didn't disappoint no for sure that dude is a wealth of, of knowledge and incredibly humble and uh, transparent with the information that he had. He wasn't, you know, keeping anything close to the vest. No, without a doubt. He, he kind of put everything out there. Any, any question we asked him, he answered it, I thought, fully. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, yeah, it was uh, – he, he even admitted, he's like, I probably shouldn't say this, but here we go. <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, guys, we're going to get straight to that, but we got a little bit of housekeeping here on the front end. So first thing, guys, if you enjoy this episode and you think, gosh, these guys are, are, are doing an awesome thing and you feel so compelled, it'd be great if you would uh, consider checking out our Patreon account. It's www.patreon slash Chasing Tales Outdoors. And uh, this money goes right into the to supporting the podcast. It goes right into production costs. And uh, as we ramp up, what we're getting there, we're going to start traveling to do some of these episodes. We're going to start to include other content as well. And there's some changes that are coming to the Patreon uh, platform. We've had some events unfold, and, and we're, we're tailoring that to, to meet those new events. But uh, we, we've got eight or so uh, Patreons now, and if anybody else would be uh, – <clears throat> if anybody else wants to join, that we, we'd love to have your support as well. So we're giving you a voice in, in the say of this podcast. So – I think that's kind of unique. I don't know if there are too many other podcasts out there that uh, give give their listeners the ability to feel like they are, uh, you know, directing the flow of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, like I said, we're we're trying to move forward a little bit with this. That way, that'll give us a chance. Like you said, maybe we can get some upgraded equipment that we might need, yeah. or like I said, we can go on the road and start doing some uh, more uh, podcast uh, in person with some people, right? So. 
Yeah, there's there's a, a variety of people we've identified that we want to you know meet up with and record, but uh, that'll come with 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 time for sure. But the other thing I just want to tease is, guys, we we told told y'all we had a big project coming, and I can tell you right now that within what Chase, like the next ten ten days to to two weeks, they're going to have heard about this new uh, project that we've been slaving away at. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully within a week. Um, yeah, we're trying to give a, a little oh. bit of time for everybody to kind of digest it and yeah. maybe uh, decide if they want in or not. This is this is going to be big, guys. This is this is something that Chase and I have been hustling to get together. Uh, I have employed my wife to come up with a logo for this event. Uh, this this is going to be cool. I, I think that this is a once this is a one of a kind event that, uh, to my knowledge, has never been done before. And uh, if it's success, we might do it again in the future. But uh, that's all I'm going to say, because otherwise I'll let the cat out the bag. So what do you say, uh, unless I miss something, why don't we just throw it straight to the show? Yeah, let's uh, dive in, and uh, everybody can have a chance to listen to Fred and what he has to say about hunting out in Arizona. There it is. Here we go. Well, guys, I have got a guest on the line that I have been following, and I said this before we hit recording, and, and I'm going to say it again so he knows I'm serious, but I have been following this fellow for a long time now. I, I mentally aspire to one day own a camera nice enough and have the patience to get the photos that he gets on a routine basis. This week's guest is Fred Bohm from Colorado. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing excellent, fellas. Thanks for uh, having me on. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, jumping on the horn. Uh, it's pro- probably pretty early in your evening over there, but um, I appreciate you taking time out your day to, to come on and chat with us. Not a problem at all, guys. Yeah, happy to be on. So for, for people who don't know who you are, I'm going to, touch on a couple things and then I want you to fill in the the blank you're a uh, a western hunting athlete uh, you're a, a general outdoors athlete if I'm not mistaken I believe I heard you talk about uh, how you just enjoy being outdoors I think you did some mountain biking back in the day and or you might still do that um, you, you you're major into outdoor photography and uh, you, you tend to just stick a bunch of critters with your uh, new breed bow uh, I'm also, we're also team new breed over here. So that, that's a little thread we've got in common. So what, uh, what am I missing? No, I mean, that's, that's it. I, uh, you know, I'd say pretty much like most guys out there, I uh, started, I grew up hunting, taught by my father, did that for a certain amount of years. And then once you hit those teenage years, you know how it goes. You just kind of, you, you, you need to find your own, find your own feet beneath you. So I got way in the rock climbing when I was a little guy or not a little guy, I'd say teenager, which is, I guess is a little guy. Uh, so I was super into that. And that's the whole reason I moved out West. Once I graduated college, uh, back East coast, I migrated out West with a bunch of buddies and just essentially became a climbing bum for a bunch of years, just screwed around, traveled all through the U S Mexico, Europe, wherever I could possibly go spending as little money, you know, eating ramen, just continuing the college lifestyle type of thing <laughs> and just moved out West for that. And then yeah, got into mountain biking as well. And just always been, I don't know, into doing stuff, into being outside. It didn't matter what it was as long as it was outside and getting into the backcountry and seeing and experiencing new things. But then uh, as often happens in life as well, as you kind of, eventually work your way back to your roots and that's what i did about i don't know maybe about seven eight years ago fell really hard back into the the hunting lifestyle and just haven't looked back since then and you know put my bike down put my uh my trad rack down for climbing and just went head over heels into it and do that as much as i possibly can you know being with i have a a young family and whatnot and still have to keep a roof and 
over our head and feed us. But uh, it, when when at all possible, I'm out there hunting these days. Yeah, I, I I have to say that you've definitely you're living the life out there when it comes to being in the outdoors. You, you know, I think uh, there's some wonderful opportunities here in Florida, but uh, I think out west y'all have got like the most uh, gorgeous place to just be outside in general. Yeah, I agree. Well, the beauty of it out west as well is just the amount of public land we have. Right. I'm an East Coaster, grew up hunting in New Jersey, and let me tell you, it was shoulder to shoulder. Public land, I mean, it was, you know, borderline dangerous out there when you were hunting. (laughs) You could get out here, if you're willing to to put the effort in and you have the time to do it, you could get away from people out here. That's the beauty of it, and that's the reason I don't think I could ever go back. So, you know, that being me based in Colorado, there's a ton of public land, but all these western states, it's just this abundance of land, and... I could spend my lifetime and every single time I go out hunting in a totally new area and I would not, I wouldn't even scratch. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, You seem to be, you said you're based out of Colorado. I mean, that's kind of like a good central location, almost like a hub for you to be able to go to a ton of states. I mean, you got Kansas close, Nebraska, Utah, Arizona. um, And it looks like you're taking advantage of all those states. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you should say that. I just before you guys gave me a ring, I was hurrying trying to finish out my Kansas uh, whitetail <laughs> tag. I think that's due tomorrow, so I'm like, oh, let me get this in there before these guys call. So, yeah, no, I I do, and honestly, well, that's that's the whitetail side of things. I just got into that maybe two years ago because I was really concentrating on elk and mule deer. Yeah, and just trying to extend the season. Like Colorado's great, but it seems as an as a bow hunter. We really concentrate, you know, maybe about mid-August if you're going after pronghorn and then through September. But if you're not looking at other states, your season's kind of done. So that's where I started looking into these other states, such as Arizona. Um, Their rut hits a totally different time than ours. I mean, you could late December and, and January, it's spectacular, the rut. So that's a totally different season. You know, with whitetail, essentially most of them start up sometime in September and go through the end of the year. So if you're, you know, as into it as I am, and, I, and I'm obsessed with it, you have to go out and look for other tags. I think this year altogether I applied to mm, six or seven different states. And so far I'm striking out, batting a, a zero here. But I still have two more states popping up, and uh, hopefully we'll get, yeah, hopefully get some good tags out of those too. Chase, you were – I laughed earlier because, Chase, didn't you just today put in your Kansas um, yeah, app Yeah, well, well, I wasn't putting in my app. I was actually trying to get a preference point for Kansas this year because I know I'm not going out there. And the draw odds are – it depends on where you're drawing okay. in Kansas. Like west, western Kansas is a lot harder than eastern Kansas, and that's where I hunted last time was in east Kansas. But it was almost like – there could be a possibility where you might not get a tag, and the next time I want to go out there, at least if I have that one preference point, I feel like I'll be guaranteed to go out there the year I want to go out there. Yeah, that's a smart move. That's the way to do it. The one I applied for, what's nice about Kansas is you got those um, the joining state or the joining units, right? So I applied for one that had 100%, but what I'm really going right, to do is hunt the one next to it, and right. that has a lower percent. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's what uh, that's what me and a buddy did uh two years ago when we went out there um it's the same thing like we had the two units side by side and we're like okay we're going to be in this one but it looks like this one we can get guaranteed for sure and it ended up working out we both ended up drawing for it what other states did you uh put in for you said you put in for like six different ones what were what were some of them 
Yep. So I'm still going to be, I'm waiting on Colorado. That doesn't come till I think early June. We find out about that. And then I still have to find out about Utah, but so far I didn't draw in Arizona, didn't draw in Montana, didn't draw in New Mexico. Um, and then the other tags, which are guaranteed, I'll do South Dakota, OTC whitetail. So that's a given. And then this Kansas, I Hey, what zones were you looking at in Kansas? Uh, I was looking at one and three because it's closer to me being in Colorado. So it's northwest. Right. And I put in Nebraska a good bit towards the southern side. So I feel like I could just, yeah, it's, it's just easier to get to from where I'm at. And, you know, being, it's going to be the first time I'm hunting Kansas. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to take a little bit to kind of figure it out what the public land looks like. But it looks like it's got a decent amount of public land by going on their website and looking through their uh their walk-in access and whatnot. It looks like, yeah, yeah I think Kansas be got decent. like one of the top states this past year for like the amount of uh, public land and the chance to kill a big buck out there. Yeah, there's some monsters in there from what I hear. Did you, uh, have you applied to Iowa or put preference points in for that yet? Because you're not super far from Iowa, I wouldn't think. Right, yeah, no, I have been putting in, I got to do that. Gosh, I don't know if I already did that this year. That one didn't come up yet, did it? No, no it comes up in that's... like May through June or something. Yeah, that's it. Yep. No, so I put it in last year. So I think this year I'll have two points. And I think where I'm looking to hunt there, I think like 100% would be at three points. You know, cool. it's that typical thing. You got to plan it out. It's just, you know, what's, <laughs> I have a feeling on how this is going to work. I'm going to draw every state in one year and I'm pretty much going to have to get divorced and my wife's <laughs> going to, you know, kick me out and, <laughs> gonna have to figure this whole thing out like oh i actually have to work in between this as well so yeah i kind of see that coming coming down the line i I, you know the the trick there is to have a buddy who uh keeps up with that and just sends you text messages when it's time like the deadline's up it's like hey tonight at midnight you gotta have your iowa tag in that's kind of chase's role in this relationship he 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 pays for a tag and then he gives me reminders so that it's it's a foreign concept to me to start putting in preference points but i'm trying to get like in the mindset that this is actually uh, hunting season two. Yeah, you know, and it takes a little bit. I think there's just that little barrier to entry. Say like Kansas, I, I've hunted Nebraska last couple of years because they have an OTC, t- yeah, OTC tag, but there's no barrier to entry. So it's like last minute, I'm like, eh, let me go to Nebraska. I, I got some free time. <laughs> go out. But this whole Kansas thing, like I'm pretty much guaranteed each year to draw it, but just having to do that by this time, but it's not too bad because I'm going through all my other tags. I'm kind of in the mindset now already. But, yeah, it, it, it does give you a little extra work, and I think it it, it kind of cleans out those that aren't uh, actually dedicated. So, you know, it makes it a little bit tougher for them. Yeah, I know I get overwhelmed when I start looking at some of those uh, western states, even like Colorado, when you've got – I don't know how many zones y'all got out there, 70, 80, 90. I mean, I'm not even sure. And I'm like, man, where does somebody start over here? I guess it would just be good to have, like, a contact – if you had a contact over there, that'd be perfect. Like family like members family. or someone on the podcast <laughs> that could help you. <laughs> I don't see. I don't see myself going to college. Unabashed, my but. goodness. No, it's, I'll tell you, it took me years before I like I was just doing OTC and building up preference points because I had no idea what to do. It took me a long time, even just to figure out Colorado. But I'll tell you, it's not like it's not a plug here. But I, what worked out great for me was. Um, uh what is it hunting fool so i started okay. getting I mean, it's like a hundred bucks a year oh yeah it. what but i'll tell you it, it it tells you every state's like all right get your apps in by this time and you don't have time to go scout a lot of these areas it kind of breaks down each unit saying this one's good this one's so so this one has a ton of hunters this one doesn't 
And that's honestly, once I started getting that magazine, I started to apply to all these other states. It, it, it took a while for me to, you know, start doing that because I just had no clue what to do. And it breaks down how to do it because yeah. every state, you wish it was some kind of uniform, like a third party would handle all the states so everything was nice and uniform and clean and you knew what you were doing. Every state is completely different how they handle it. No yeah, doubt. It's confusing. No doubt. Well, Walter and I had kind of been talking about going out to Arizona because of like, that have the over-the-counter tag uh, late season there in January for mule deer and coos deer. That seemed like, so I was like, well, man, we can extend our season because there's not really a whole lot going on yeah. here in Florida that time. Now, there are some areas like the Panhandle here that they actually rut that time frame. But the, the tag wasn't, it was like 300 yeah. bucks to get like a mule deer slash coos deer tag and go out there and chase them around with your bow at the end of the season. So, it's, it's totally affordable. And I mean, and I'll go back to that amount of land. Like I, I, at first, when I came to Colorado, I'm like, oh, it's endless public land. You go down to Arizona, and I don't know what the percentage is, so I don't want to throw some obscene number out there, but it is ridiculously high. You Pretty much anywhere you step off the road, I feel like you're on public land there. So it is uh, – and, and, there's, and there's animals too. There's you know I've seen a ton of animals. That's probably one of my favorite hunts every year. Well, also because you know I, I hate the cold, so January hits here, and we're getting dumped on the snow. I want to be down there and you can hunt a t-shirt, you know, so it's just everything about it's awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know why I chose Colorado when I don't like the winter, but you know what? I'm not, the, not always the wisest person out there. Well, given the housing prices out there, you could probably sell your house oh, and no buy doubt. a huge chunk of land out there by, and you know, one of the federal agents, my wife brought it up. She's like, you know, we need to move out to Colorado. I'm like, yeah, damn right. That's what I'm talking about. And then I started looking yeah. at housing prices. I was like, yeah, you got to go back to school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, it's insane it's, and it's all because of this weed boom i'm like just will everybody please legalize it so everybody could go back home god it's seriously crazy. exactly yeah 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 no so it was luckily we got in on our place before it got this complete madness right hit, but uh right it's one of those deals yeah i talked to my wife i'm like if we ever leave denver we're not coming back in you, you can't afford to buy back into it so we're either here or you know it's here or we're gone so, <laughs> so you, you you made a nice transition for us right there because you you brought up arizona chase and that's kind of what i want to talk to you about tonight is kind of why you leave we kind of touched on that and in fact i, I looked up 64 percent of arizona is either state public or federal public so it's a huge yeah. chunk of land um yeah i, I am consistently blown away at a how affordable arizona is to hunt but also you know we talked to jay scott a couple episodes back and he talked about the abundance of turkeys i was on your instagram page you're out there hunting quail i mean like yeah when i think of arizona i think of like a desert and uh, tumbleweeds and that it's just not the case no well it's it's it varies drastically sure. um you know like a lot of these western states if you get up in elevation up above the magian rim you know that's full pine forests they're getting snow they got ski resorts that type of thing you drop down more towards you know phoenix and you're in the desert desert down there absolutely you know desolate the tumbleweeds you're talking about are not even that really uh, just cactus and, yeah. and guys running drugs over the borders. That type of fun stuff. <laughs> to Colorado. So that's what you get. Yeah, further south you go, the more interesting it gets. Yeah. But, uh, no, it varies dramatically. Like, you get up towards, I say, Flagstaff area, and you're, you know, you're in some elevation. You're in deep pine forest, and you're calling elk. And, uh, 
yeah, you drop back down and we'll, we'll take the dogs out. We'll do some quail hunting down there. Uh, that's usually more towards the desert. Or if you're actually out bow hunting and the timing works out right, depending on what time of year, because their season's really cool. You got like January, you can hunt in like August, September, then again in December. So it's, you know, dispersed pretty nicely throughout the year. But, if, you know, if that matches up with quail, I mean, I always have a couple uh, small game tips on the arrows as well and you know just go out there and just kind of screw around with that if the day's slow you're, you're shooting the quail with the bow okay. sometimes i'm out there bird hunting you know i got the two dogs my you know, sage and break are my two uh hunting dogs and uh yeah we'll take them out there then they were you know running them with shotguns of course okay cool so what do you think what's the most um obviously besides it being a desert what's the most un- undervalued game out in arizona right now like what's what's the one thing that you wouldn't want to tell people on a on a public podcast about arizona hunting i, I you know <laughs> i've done a couple podcasts now and every time i bring up arizona and every single time i regret it because you know what when i'm out there it's awesome like i'm all by myself out there like colorado it's it's starting to i, I joke with my hunting partners i'm like you know maybe we should just start road hunting because nobody's doing that anymore everybody's in the backcountry. like that's the yeah. cool thing to do so we go back there I and mean, there was times we get in you know seven miles in and you're gonna see like a dozen guys in there and i'm like, blown away by this but that's not really happening yet down in arizona uh or maybe it isn't just the areas i'm going i'm not seeing that so that's the attraction for me. You know, I think Coos Steer is getting a really big name now. Um, you know, I, I, I go to areas that have both Coos and Muleys there. Everybody wants the, the elk tag, of course, but they're tough to get. I, you know, at least the areas I'm trying to get into, if I'm going to spend that type of money, I want to, you know, I, I want a somewhat decent unit. Right. Being that the deer, you know, are OTC, the Coos are fun to chase and, and, and the Muleys, you could get some monsters down there too, especially in the desert where, you know, I've, I've done a good, spent a good amount of time outside of Phoenix, and there's just nothing out there. And nobody – it doesn't seem like anybody wants to hunt it. You're, you know, carrying water in. It's brutal. You don't see that many deer that often, but when you do, they're tanks. Um, and the areas I hunt down there, that's all muleys. But then I could jump a spot not that far, and I, I could be on coos deer. So the variety between those two is just, you know, spectacular. So just depending on what you want to do, honestly. So so let's let's touch on that for a minute. I, I I'm curious when you go in these areas, how are you de- electing to to go after coos deer versus mule deer, or are you glassing and trying to decide and, and letting the game tell you like you know, whatever's hot at that moment that you're seeing tell you what you're going after? Yeah, see, I, it, some people may be picky. I'm not one of those guys. So anything that's in front of me with, with horn on its head is probably going to get shot. So, <laughs> you and I, you know, I, think, take... I think we might be uh, distant relatives because uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity impaler, my friend. Exactly. I'll take either. So <laughs> some of the areas I hunt will specifically be areas with muleys, like like the desert areas I'm talking about in uh, outside of Phoenix. Some of these other areas, like this this recent one in January I went to, I was on a big, big mule deer. I got into them, you know, eh, somewhat close, and I blew them out. You know, wind swirled, they caught me, whatever. So I keep going up the ridge, and sure enough, I mean, maybe a couple hundred yards, well, no, I should say like a mile up, further up this ridge, I get onto a bunch of coos deer. So it's really, I haven't, some of these areas, I haven't figured out why there's there's this overlap in there. You know, I've talked to some locals, and they're like, well, usually if you don't see the coos deer in there, they don't like the, if there's cattle in there, they don't like them as much. The mule deer will stay. I don't know. I haven't figured it out, but there's areas where they could be a couple hundred yards from each other. 
And I'm not exactly sure why, but so I'm not picky with, you know, it's got a decent rack on it. I'll go after, you know, Muley. I'm not, I'm not going to hold back. I'll go after either one of them. You're out there. Are, are both of them running at the same time in January? Is it like a, like a dual rut, I guess? Yes. Wow. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. 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 No, I, I've seen them both. Yeah. Specifically this year in January. That that mule deer I went after had a bunch of does with him. He was thrashing the hell out of this tree or a bush, I should say. And then when I went up and found that uh, uh, the two steer, which I eventually shot one of them that was up there, there was a bunch of does with them too. And the big, the bigger of the two steer was pushing the other ones around. So yeah, there was rut action on both, you know, both the uh, coos and the muleys, same time. That's awesome. So I, 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 this is what we'll do. If you end up uh, finding a, a couple of Florida tags out there in Arizona, uh, we'll, we'll we'll point chase at the biggest the biggest deer we can find, and you and I'll go impale something because I, <laughs> I I'm like you, dude. I, if I'm going that far, I'm hunting with a bow. I'm already handicapped as it is. I'm not trying oh, yeah. to to be something elite. But Chase, dude, he's got this uncanny ability to kill something huge almost every year so i i have no doubt that he'd dive off into the bush and come back with like a pope and young uh deer on his first stalk. i wouldn't say i always say I'm, I'm better lucky than good and most of my most of the stuff here man it's just for a matter of i got a lot of time i can put in so out there you're not going to have that i mean you're going to be out there for uh, a week being too humble um, especially probably the first time or two going out there i'm sure there's some type of learning curve could you talk about that like going out to arizona and maybe what the the learning curve was for you yeah you know it for me it wasn't too drastic coming from colorado you know I, i'd hunt the muleys down there pretty similar the areas i'm hunting the mountains aren't as big as where i hunt in colorado i'm hunting above tree line typically for mule deer out here um so going down there maybe glassing was a little bit different uh some thicker areas I was uh and and when I hunt them in Colorado the deer in Colorado I'm not hunting during the rut you know that the mule deer they're still in velvets in September sure. so you're not dealing with that you're just you're, you're seeing them above tree lines so they're a little bit more visible um I, I from what I hear they don't like the velvet rubbing up against trees is painful and I think the bugs bother them when they're down lower too so they're up above tree line so you can see them pretty well but trying to get a stalk on them can be pretty tough. Now going to Arizona, when I hunt them down there, they're in the rut. So I kind of had to switch gears a little bit on that. So what I actually did, I, I haven't heard of many other guys doing it and heck, maybe everybody's doing it and I just don't know it, but I took down some, you know, rattling antlers the same way you would treat whitetail, you know, sitting in a tree stand to get them in. And that's how I pulled that coos deer in this year. Had a big old honking set of uh, mule deer antlers. I just found some sheds a couple years back brought those in with me and they worked because a lot of that stuff's a bit thicker in there. you're dealing with some cedars you're not you know you're not able to glass sometimes as well as you could at, say you know in colorado above tree lines so you're using a little bit couple different tactics you know a lot of the areas down there you could hunt from the truck you know it's feasible to make camp down by the road whatnot and then just do some big hikes each day you don't plan on putting in a bunch of miles to be able to do that but then you're not worried about trying to carry in water all your gear, you know, you could just kind of throw some food and water in your backpack and off you go. Um, but coming from, you know, I mean, I don't know if you guys are primarily like whitetail in there. It's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of, 
you're putting some miles down. There's no doubt about well, that. There's let, let's back up. Let's back up a, a touch because that's the that's the first time someone's mentioned that. But you're saying that uh, guys that are going out there for the first time, maybe they're 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 not uh, experienced in backcountry hunting. You're you're saying that hunting from the road, if you're willing to huff it, could be an advantage and something that you you might suggest. Yeah. Now, depending on the area I go to, I've I've done that. You know, really? and I'll just stay in the truck and, you know, I'll probably put down do, doing a good bit of glassing and during the day. But I mean, I would say between, you know, eight and 10 miles a day. So sure. I'm, I'm putting some miles in with some serious vert added to that as well. It may, if that's kind of your thing where you don't want to be in the backcountry and you don't want to camp, you don't want to bring everything in. It's definite, you know, that's definite a, a possibility for you. Some places I'll go to, it just makes more sense where there's a lot of deer in a certain area. I'll hoof in everything and I'll just stay in there, especially if I can find a water source. Sure. Um, I found a lot more problems in Arizona trying to find water sources as compared to Colorado. When you're in a high country in Colorado, you find water anywhere, just about. Arizona, different story. So that could be your, your pinch point, what's making it tough for you. But if you can find some water deeper in there, yeah, I, I mean, I would suggest you know, take a tent if you feel like it and get way back in there. And then each day you're just kind of spiking out from there or, you know, just doing little day hunts. Uh, so either one worked, though. I've done them both and I've been successful both ways. It seems like uh, one advantage that would come to that also is if there's you get all the way back in there and the game maybe isn't quite as abundant as you thought or you're not seeing what you what you're not seeing anything. If you're not, you know, hauling everything back into a spike camp back at, well, that wouldn't be the spike camp, but, um, you know, if you're not hauling everything back in there and you're coming back to the truck at night, you can just pick up and move that night and, and be at a new spot in the morning. Totally. Way more versatile if you're working out of the truck. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, without a doubt. Cause I mean, I, I, Hey, I've done that many a time where I, I'm like, I, <laughs> I loaded all this crap on my back. I hiked this in, you know, I, I'm not leaving. You just kind of, you're like, <laughs> I'm not doing this again. I'm not hiking all the way back out, moving the truck, going back in. So there's times that it can be a disadvantage. You know, you'll you'll stick to a spot just surely because of the effort that you put forth. So when you have that versatility and you can jump back out to the truck, like, nope, that didn't work. Just go to a different spot. Or if you start seeing other guys in there, sometimes you get stuck in a spot. And, you know, same thing. You did all the work to get in there. And then you got a couple other guys coming in and you're like, oh, this isn't going to work. And, yeah, I mean, just depending on the areas you're looking at, it, it working out of a truck would be just fine. Is that – is is that a frowned upon method? Like, do the do the locals look at that as uh, bleeding the, the roads, or is that not a uh, not a thing? No, not at all. I think most of the locals down there, and some of the guys I've actually talked to, I find that a lot more guys in Arizona truck kind of say about uh, uh, post to Colorado. I think their road systems are a little bit better down there. Um, and I so no, I, I think a lot of those guys end up doing that the other part of it is to hell with what anybody else thinks what works is what works right i mean exactly you know i mean i don't care what these guys are thinking but no i i don't think it's looked down upon you know frowned upon at all yeah i i shoot ducks on the water so i'm not really worried about it i was just curious you know (laughs) (laughs) if i've convinced those ducks to be in in my spread in front of me i feel like i've done my uh i've done the work i needed to anyway so yeah, I mean, what we're doing is hard enough as is. I mean, how many right. more handicaps and obstacles can we possibly throw in there? I mean, eventually we're just all going to be going out there with spears and throwing those. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I see these guys switching over to trad, and I'm like, I got to get a hell of a lot better before I would do something like that. So I don't know why I would ever throw more disadvantages. You know, what works which is what works, and I say stick with it. Don't don't pick up a trad bow. It's way yes, too it's way too much that. fun, man. Nope, never gonna do it. <laughs> I like killing things too much, so. 
<laughs> yeah, the only thing you kill with the trad boat, it seems like, is your budget. <laughs> I believe it. So how did photography become a thing for you in the backcountry? Because you talk about hunting being hard enough as it is. What, what, what compelled you to take highly sensitive gear that's kind of bulky and heavy and, and throw that in your pack and go with you as well? What, what, what brought that on? My enjoyment of self-loathing. I just like punishing myself. So <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I, I've been shooting photography, uh, oh God, probably since I was about 20 years old and it was on and off, you know, how much I did it, how much I didn't do it. Uh, but I just got really, I think it just lends itself really well to hunting. We're always up during the golden hour. That's, you know, just when the sun's rising sure. or the sunset, we're, we're that perfect time. We're always up during that. And then we get a lot of time kind of in the middle of the day to, you know, screw around where, you know, it's kind of slow. So it was, it was almost gave me something to do when I was staying in there. Cause I'm, you know, I, I really do enjoy the backcountry thing. So I, I do trips where I'm out there seven, 10, you know, up to 12 days. And a lot of times it's by myself. So, you know, bringing that in there, it, it just gave me something else to do. And then I had kids and I'm like, well, this would be cool to, you know, maybe blog about what I'm doing and have my kids as, as they grow up, they can see what their dad did at, you know, this age or, you know, right now what I'm doing. And it'd be a cool thing for them to look back on. So I just got more and more into it. Uh, I have a background in design. I was a motion designer for years. So, I, you know, there's a design background to it as well. So I kind of knew what I was doing getting into it. Hunting lended itself really well. Like, you know, like rock climbing, not so much. You know, you're kind of stuck to a certain line. You're stuck to right. a rope and you're not going to get any, you know, crazy angles unless you're specifically going out there to, you know, shoot pictures of somebody else doing it. Mountain biking was so fast. It just, it didn't make sense for that as well. So yeah, I just, I kind of made the decision that no matter where I go, there's always going to be my camera with me. Uh, a lot of times I curse the thing because, you know, it's just adding an extra six pounds. And as the years go on and I get more into it, I'm adding more lenses and I'm like, well, now I need a flash and that's going to take batteries. And now I need this. And it just goes and goes. And next thing you know, I'm throwing out stuff. I, I don't need all this food The hell with it. Let's get more camera gear in there. So <laughs> Yeah, it became an obsession, honestly, and it's, it, now it's almost to the point where it feels as important to me as the actual hunt itself. I really enjoy trying to tell a story through a single image. I mean, there's guys doing videos out there. I mean, that was part of my background as well. I, I love it. I love watching some of that stuff, but there's something to me about taking a still image and trying to tell a story that we don't have voiceover to tell the story. We don't have music to set the mood. We don't have motion to see exactly what's going on. We have one still image to try to tell a full story. So you got to get a lot in that image. You know, it's not just a picture of the sunrise or, you know, what's what's the subject? What's he doing in the picture? Or, you know, what can you do in that one image through layering and through, you know, a multitude of different skill sets to, you know, to tell that story? So I just kind of fell in love with doing that and definitely obsessed with it. What do you do? You, do you feel like that has had any crossover, the skills of photography? Has hunting influenced your ability to be a photographer or vice versa? Um, There's one good question. Something I never really <laughs> thought about. Yeah, no, that <laughs> me there. I don't know. I Potentially, sometimes there's conflict because you want to shoot pictures during the golden hour in the morning, but that's also, or just before sunrise, but that's also the best time to be glassing, you know? So a lot of times it can conflict with, with timing, sure. you know? And it, so there's that issue, but maybe it's helped a little bit with patience and, and pushing me to go to another spot. Like, okay, I got a picture here. Like, 
let's go over that next ridge and see what's over there. And that's also, I think, pretty good for hunting as well. Like if you, you know, there's not animals in a certain area, maybe you'll go over the next ridge. And but I don't, I don't know that it, it's made me a better hunter. Maybe I'd have to look into that deeper. Like actually think about that. That's a, that's a great question. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think. I, I... The, the thought just crossed my mind. I just wondered if, uh, you know, the, the attention to detail, the eye for different things in the outdoors, maybe I was thinking that, uh, you know, no one's more engaged in the outdoors than an outdoorsman, you know, a hunter or a fisher or a gatherer. You know, those those are the people that are paying attention to the wind and the, all those subtle details. So I just, you know, you talk about telling that story. I bet it, I bet it's had some influence for sure. Yeah, and I think maybe what it's done is given me even a greater appreciation because when you're out there as a photographer, you're looking at the light. You're looking at, like, you may look at a tree and say, like, well, what's cool about this thing? Is it the texture of the bark or how can I integrate that into the shot? Like, so, you know, potentially the appreciation for what I'm seeing out there, um, without a doubt, and just that ability to be able to share it. I come home and show my kids, my wife, and she sees, she's like, oh, my God, I see why you're obsessed with being out there. And, you know... so maybe it's, maybe it's helped me explain what I do and why I love what I do so much a little bit to the people that may not understand it quite as well as I do or, you know, that hunters do. Sure. So let's circle back to hunting real quick. I, I'm curious, you know, I, I think about hunting the rut for mule deers and or mule deers, mule deer and, and coos deer. The, the biggest thing I can't wrap my head around is how do you hunt something that is on the on the prowl like that? Like, I mean, you, you talk you kind of touched on this when you said the, the rattle and the antlers, but. What else do do y'all do to be able to target um, an animal that is probably more active and on its feet then than any other time of the year? A lot of it is you're, you're glassing these things up, waiting for the does to bed. And then, you know, the bucks are just drunk stupid at this point. So what you could do is typically when I'm going in for a stalk at that point, I'm just making sure those does don't see me. I've had, without a doubt, bucks see me coming in. And that are so, I mean, it, it, you know, there's, there's levels of it. It's not like I'm just standing up smoking a cigarette and just walking straight at them or something like that. You know, there's, there's level, but you know, I'm more worried about the does, but if you could keep those does bedded, it, you know, the bucks aren't going to leave them. So I, I've gotten away with a lot more than you normally would because they're sitting on the, uh, they're sitting on the does. So as long as you can sneak in and kind of do it, you know, that way, the other way is just cutting them off seeing where they're moving to and, and trying to get, you know, intersect a point with the wind to your advantage uh, and, and getting in there. That's worked for me, you know, just kind of posting up in a bush. And then honestly, uh, when they're running, I, I think the antlers knocking them together a good bit. It's, it's worked pretty well for me. You know, I did a lot out here. It is spot and stalk though. You know, the antler thing does work here and there, but you're sometimes just as likely to scare them off. So it's, it's waiting for them to bed uh, and then just trying to, you know, hopefully the terrain's right. A lot of times it's not, and you just kind of let them sit, and hopefully they'll reposition into a better stalkable area. Uh, a lot of times they don't, and you just kind of got to move on from there and just go look for another group because they're just plain and simple, not stalkable. Now, when you're planning a stock or whatever, and you decide, hey, I'm going after this deer, how long does it generally take for you once you decide you're going after that deer to where you get within bow range? Is it, I mean, I don't know how far away they are. You're glassing them. I'm assuming they're probably maybe hundreds of yards away or a thousand, uh, or is it just all different? I mean, yeah, it, it severely varies, but say, let's, let's go with the scenario that you're, you're finding some, you know, they're walking around in the morning and then you're waiting for them to bed. You know, I mean, it, it can obviously vary. That could be as close as a few hundred yards away, which is pretty rare, but I mean, there's, there's definitely times where it's been miles away, you know, a mile and a half up to two miles away with, you know, you're using a big 60 power, 
spotter. They could be really far away. And then what you're doing, depending on what time of the morning, you could be waiting for the thermals to switch for you. Um, you know, let's go with a cautious scenario. So, yeah, say you see them right at first light. You're sitting around watching them, waiting for them to bed. Uh, if they bed in a spot where they're going to be in a lot of shade, they sometimes won't reposition right away. So then you could kind of make a move on them. But your thermals are going down in the morning. That typical thing. So you can't get up above them at that point because, you know, you're, they'll wind you without mm. a doubt. So you're waiting for those thermals to switch, start going uphill, and then you can approach from up above. I, I don't know if I've ever shot one approaching from below. Maybe I've made that mistake when I was, you know, just starting out, approaching them that way. But you typically, the majority of the time, you're going to be up above them. Uh, so you're waiting, you know, the whole morning for them to bed down. You, you know, wait for those thermals, and then you're making your move in there. It could be hours and hours. You know, and especially if it's a big deer and you're like, I can't blow this. And you know, they're just going to you know, blow out of the country if they send you, um, you know, you're you're really taking your time to get in there. It could be, you know, there's no doubt I've done stalks four or five up to six hours. And then, you know, you could get in on them and they're bedded and then you're waiting for them to stand. You're waiting for them to shift or maybe get up to nibble on some food. So it could take some substantial time too. have you ever done multiple stocks or in a day? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like all the time. Probably just messing, maybe messing up. <laughs> oh, blowing it all the time. Yeah, it's it, it, it does turn out to it's a game of numbers a lot of times. Um, you know, I, I think as I'm as I'm getting older, you learn which ones just not to waste your time with. That is a very low percentage chance. Uh, and you know, you learn well. You can waste a half a day trying to go in on the stalk. That's an extremely low percentage chance, or you can move on and jump somewhere else. But Depending on the you know animals down in Arizona, yeah, I put multiple stalks on in a day. Uh, you know, seen that many where that is definitely a, a possibility. That's certainly the case hunting uh, pronghorn. You could get you know three, four stalks in a day with those things. So it's you know it's just depending on how abundant. But you know, I get down to an area like I was talking earlier in Phoenix. I mean, there were days I would you know maybe see one deer every three days. So you're really planning that one out well if you do see one. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it does vary, of course. I'll, I'll watch them online or something, and they're starting, okay, we're going to go stock after this, but you really, never really get an idea of how long it takes. Like, they're like, oh, they're 1,000 yards away. They're getting Sometimes they're getting in their vehicle, driving to get into better areas, and you're like, oh, wow, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe it takes 30 minutes or maybe it takes six hours. I didn't know, so that's uh, one of the things I was curious about, um, especially when if I ever get out there. I'd like to be, okay, do I need to be trying to get in there quick or this is a slow slow game? No, there's – I mean, that's the beauty of editing, right? You can turn uh, five days into 23 minutes and get your commercials in there as well, so – yeah, no, it's 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 a long play, without a doubt. And, you know, something a buddy told me a long time ago, is it made a lot of sense to me. And, it, you know, as I progress, it's making more and more. It's just, when in doubt, if you don't know what to do, just sit still and just wait it out. And I think that definitely um, comes into play with Western hunting out here. If it's a situation where you're like, I don't know if I go in on this thing, it's going to I usually just hold back then and until I feel pretty stinking confident that me going in there is going to have a, a positive result. What's your What's your ideal range? What are you going for? When you're framing a hunt in your mind, you're thinking, I need to get to this point to be the most optimal bow hunter. How far are you trying to get from your animal? Nothing less than 120 yards. If they're closer, I back up. Try to give it a, a more of a challenge. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm only into the long distance stuff. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, you know, ideally, <laughs> forty yards is, you know, that's the idea thing. But you know, as as much as guys push that online, it just doesn't happen sometimes, right? So I mean, I, I practice consistently, you know, at home out to a hundred yards. I don't shoot out to a hundred yards because there's so many more variables, right? You know, last year's, uh, the speed goat I got last year, that was at 63 yards. And I felt extremely confident with that. Every, you know, he wasn't spooked. He perfectly broadside. There was no wind, you know, and just aced them. There was no issue, but I would still feel confident out to 60. You know, I've had buddies come out here, primarily rifle hunters. And they're like, well, I won't shoot anything over 30 yards. I'm like, oh, you're going to have a tough time shooting at something. You know, because it just doesn't getting them. Not saying I haven't killed them closer than that. I mean, I've shot animals out, you know, as close as eight yards out here, but uh, that's rare. You know, I, I feel like the average shot I take out here is probably between 40 and 50. Nice. You know, with a couple, yeah, a couple longer ones out there without a doubt. I, you know, won't talk about those, but you know. I, are like, they, are they spooky out there? I mean, I know hunting over here, whitetail, I mean, I tried to fling an arrow at a buck one time at 60, around 63 yards. And he had already taken like three steps by the time the, uh, the arrow had gotten there. I mean, he was a yeah. little on edge uh, as it was. And who knows? He, maybe he hurt uh, my veins or something. But are they are they spooky? Do they do they jump string? I mean, what do they do out there when you take a shot? I wouldn't say they jump string as much as whitetail hunting. From what I've experienced, whitetail hunting. Um, geez, it seems like every time I shoot at a whitetail from a stand, they're jumping string, right? Yeah, they can. You know, it definitely depends if they're alert to you or not. If they're alert to you, and especially coos deer, man, coos are just little crackheads i mean they're just jittery looking everywhere just jumping and hopping around they seem like a rabbit they're really <laughs> super super high strung so i would compare those i mean they are whitetail right they're just yeah. a different species or whatnot but uh yeah they're, they're a little bit jumpy mule deer i would say a little bit less so mule deer can get curious there's a lot of times where they'll spook run 30 yards and then turn back and look at you and i've gotten shots multiple times on mule deer that did exactly that you'll just kind of wait and you're like all right they spooked out for me and then they'll stop and look and you kind of know that's another 30 yards and then they'll stare at you because they're like oh well is this dangerous you know am i just kind of bugging out yeah you could get that but no i wouldn't say they're quite as bad as as white tail come up from a deer stand yeah, I, I, I'll, yeah, I'll stick with. It. So, do you do you uh, subscribe to the theory of uh, you, you mentioned whitetails being a or coos deer being a subspecies of whitetails? Do you subscribe to that to the theory that's circulating now that you know the there was a change in climate thousands of years ago and the whitetail spread across the nation and then as it receded, it left different pockets like the mule deer in the mountains and the coos deer in the in the southwest. It, have you heard that theory? I haven't. It sounds like it's above my pay grade for sure. But, uh, <laughs> I was I was it, hoping it, it was it was your pay grade. <laughs> it could make sense. You know, it's just depending on what they. I, I think a lot of what their predators are, and sure. I think that's a reason some of those coos deer. You know, there's a lot of mountain lion in uh, Arizona, a ton of them. I think they're dealing with that, right? Something that's a hell of a lot better of a, right. a predator than us, and they're dealing with somebody coming in a lot quieter. I mean, I you know we walk in, we saw like a bunch of elephants. We're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna sit in an office for 50 weeks out of a year and then two weeks i'm gonna go hunt i'm gonna be super smooth out there and graceful like a swan no it doesn't happen so <laughs> you know it, they're dealing with animals that are a lot lot slicker than us um so yeah you know i don't think it's i i i could see that i could see you know it, it just depends on 
kind of where they're at and what their predators are now and what happens a million years ago. I'm not sure. I'll let somebody else answer that one. <laughs> I. I heard that on a podcast somewhere and it's always like resonated with me. It's like it, the idea in theory makes sense, but it's way, like you said, it's way above my pay grade. So Yeah, and I think a lot of such, isn't it as it gets closer to the equator, the animals typically get smaller and smaller. Right. The yeah. further north you go, they're bigger. So that kind of makes sense. You get down towards, you know, where, where the coos deer are. It's it's getting further south instead of, you know, the mule deer up here. Now, how big yeah, how big is a mule deer out there? Like, we, I don't, I don't have anything to relate a mule deer to, but, like, when you're cleaning one, I mean, what body size does a mule deer have out there? Big. They're a good bit bigger than a, uh, a white tail. My biggest one, I geez, was the first year I hunted, uh, I shot a 203. And a this, 203 inches? Yeah, 203 inches, yep. Okay, wow. That's, that's a good Yeah, he was a, he, was a, he was a beast. Yeah, and I, I would compare, like, how much weight we took out with him to a small elk. You know, I might, I might catch some flack to that. I'm sure that's not exactly true. But it was damn close. It was, you know, it would be like a small cow. Right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've yeah. heard of two fifty to three hundred pounds is common. Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe bigger than that. I, I don't know. I guess it just depends on maybe what part of the country you're in too. Um, yeah, like yeah. I mean, and they vary, you know. Again, but no. I, on average, they're a good bit bigger than a white tail. I'd say. I know, you know, white tails could be giants too. You get a two hundred inch white tail, and I think it weigh a ton, but. uh I'd say on average, yeah, a mule deer is a good bit more. It took, I don't know why we did this, but me and one buddy, we took it out in one shot, that uh, that big deer, and I, I swear I broke my back several times doing it. It was <laughs> never do anything like that again. I pulled elk out that were way easier. Like, what was I, I don't know about you, Walter, but I'd kind of like to transition maybe into some gear stuff, maybe like some of the gear that you take out there. Um, so when you're going out there, Obviously, it sounds like you're hunting with a. Do you hunt with a rifle at any point in time, or are you just strictly bow? You know, I do. I do rifle about once a year, just with some buddies. It's, a, it's like our old man hunt. Um, we'll just go out because I, I could get a. Uh, it's an unlimited draw basically for this one tag, and it's just a uh, uh, cow elk. So I'll go out with my rifle, but everything else beyond that is all is all with my bow. Okay, so we decide. Say so you're going to Arizona in January. What, what gear are you taking out there? Uh, if I plan on going in the backcountry, which I would say the majority of the time I do, you know, it's going to be – are you looking for, like, specific brands of stuff or what? Or just uh, I mean, yeah, like maybe you're taking – are you – like, say, if you're camping, maybe you're taking a, a sleeping bag or what type of clothes are you taking out there? Yeah, um, yeah. Are, are you using anything specific, like, arrow-wise? Um, j- just some tips maybe that you could give us, East Coast guys who are trying to come out there. Yeah, totally. I mean, first first of all, get a good backpack. So I, I use a Kafaru. Uh, they're local out here in Denver, uh, Wheat Ridge, which is like next town over. And all-American made, you know, kick-ass, just never, just won't fall apart. You could, you know, light thing on fire and it's fine type of thing. <laughs> so good backpack. And, I mean, I take in a tent, uh, a small tent, 40-degree uh, sleeping bag. I love down because it packs into like a Nalgene-sized bottle. Uh, you know, I'll bring, typically I make my own, um, not freeze dried, but dehydrated food, you know, as opposed to using something like a mountain house, cause there's so much sodium in that stuff. And it just messes with your system over, you know, anything over two days, I, it starts messing with my system pretty good. So I'll make my own and that's usually made out of, you know, whatever I shot the previous year, elk deer, whatever, and just a couple different recipes. So I'll bring that in. Water filter is crucial. Um, I'll use a jet boil. 
that's both for coffee because I typically drink enough coffee to kill a horse a day while I'm in there. So that and that also, you know, then that that's going to hydrate up your your dehydrated food. Then, I mean, pretty much I don't bring in any extra clothes. I'll bring in a puppy, like a puppy jacket, a down jacket, like a thin one that'll pack down almost into nothing and then rain gear. Otherwise, everything that I'm and one extra pair of socks and then otherwise anything that I'm wearing in is is the only clothing I have, which is, you know, just a, a thin pair of pants, merino, like T-shirt style thing, a merino top. And then I have those jackets and whatnot. And that's that's what takes care of that. And otherwise, just, yeah, my bow, obviously range finder, binocs. Typically, I'll carry a smaller uh, spotter in there. So I just don't need that weight with the 60. I, I know what an animal, if I'm going to kill it or not, if I'm going to go after it. I understand some of the guys have, you know, if you're going to go out hunt sheep, you got to make sure it's a full curl or, or whatnot, you know. But I could typically tell by a, a smaller spotter, like a 11 to 33, hmm. if I'm going to go after that animal or not. And it saves you a ton of weight. And then just my camera gear, tripod. I keep saying this like just. No, it just <laughs> yeah. adds up and adds up. DSLR. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> batteries. I mean, five or six batteries for the camera. <laughs> it doesn't end. It doesn't end. But, uh, you know, if I could do for a 10 day hunt, typically talking about two pounds of food a day, so, you know, 10 day hunt would be 20 pounds of food. So I'll, I'll probably okay. walk in with about a, a 65, 70 pound pack. Wow. Yeah. And if it's Arizona, you, you may be carrying in water too, which then it, then it gets absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, then it yeah. could get ugly. So road, yep. we're going to be road stroking. It sounds like not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's the thing about deer you have to buy. So if somebody coming out west for the first time, I mean, it makes sense. Like, yeah, all you would need to carry in is you know, small camera, whatever kind of camera you want, type of thing. Like, food, a little bit of extra clothes, some water in your backpack, game bags. Yeah, and that's it. You you get away with going in there with like you know fifteen pounds at most. Now you're talking my language. That's, yeah, there. That, <laughs> that, that, that's well, speaking like to said, this fat boy. No, yeah, we're, we're not. Just, yeah, we're, we're not having like high expectations the first couple of times we go out there, anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It's just, hey, let's get some game down. Let's get this figured out before we yeah. like go hardcore. Obviously. Um, now we your way into it. Yeah, yeah. Don't when go, you know, full bore first time and be like, you know, I'm never going out west again. Fred's a liar. This sucks. <laughs> so, no. Yeah, exactly. We talked about that before on a podcast where, like, your first experience should probably be something comfortable. Like, you go out and you just go, hey, man, this this needs to be comfortable. Maybe get a hotel room for a night or something, get a hot shower, um, and do some things where it's enjoyable to really like, okay, yeah, I could definitely go back and maybe a little bit harder next time as opposed to just going hardcore and you're like, man, I'm never going back there. I don't know what these guys are talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way I always think about it is like, what would I do with my kid? It's like, I got a three-year-old. I'm not going to be like, hey, get the backpack on. Get your Snoopy backpack on. We're going in the backcountry. I want you to toughen up. No, you're going to give him a good experience. Let them enjoy it, you know, and as it should be, yeah, everybody's like, first time going out there, just have fun with it. You're going to see animals, you know, not that far from the road. So it's just a matter if you really like being in the backcountry and, you know, maybe eventually you guys want to do that, but start out by the truck. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, are there other opportunities while you're out there hunting? I, I've seen people where they talk about hunting like javelina and maybe some other stuff midday while it's, you may kind of have like a lull in the action. Totally. So I always pick up a javelina tag. You could get that. I'm trying to remember. I don't. Yeah, I guess it is on a point system. But usually, where I hunt, I could get it every year. Uh, so you just pick up a javelina tag. I think that's a hundred bucks. Well worth tagging that on. 
Um, there's, uh, God, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I think it's Kudamundi. I okay, just yeah. this year was the first time I shot one. I'm sitting out there, I'm glassing around, and I swear to God, I'm in the middle of the desert, and I think a Canadian goose just landed. All I see is this like black head walking towards me, maybe about <laughs> half a mile away. Like, what the hell is this thing doing? And then it keeps coming closer. And I'm like, that's not a goose, that's a monkey. So this thing's going, and it looks like it's this huge tail, but they're they're in the raccoon family. They call them like the the desert monkeys, I think is what the nickname is for them. And they have these monster long tails and they're really good eating, but there is a type of a raccoon with a long tail. And so you huh. can hunt those. Uh, that's, I think that's on your small game tag, but definitely, yeah, add in that uh, javelina. You see a good bit of them out there and very callable as well. Just, you know, YouTube calling in uh, uh, javelina and they're super susceptible to calls. So really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Could always tack on there. I, I haven't seen them, but you know, a lot of guys will tack on a, a mountain lion tag if you're feeling froggy and you, you know, you want to. <laughs> if one of them come across your trail, um, <laughs> you could do that as well. But no, I mean, I would definitely say, yeah, throw that javelina tag on there for sure. Yeah, that's that's nice. a no-brainer. I, I they're like the wild pig of the of the Southwest. They're just like one of those things where slow day, javelina walks by, time to kill it. You know, like totally. <laughs> it's, it's like us in the deer stand, dude. We're sitting there and it's slow, and a hog comes ambling by. We're, we're liable to, to 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 sling an arrow at it. Oh yeah, I, I can't tell you how many. I'm sure just tons of times I've blown out deer because I'm shooting at squirrels. It's I get bored. I mean, that's just what happens. Start flinging some carbon, so <laughs> starts barking at you from 15 yards away. I mean. It's asking for it. So. Yeah, it's like a it's like a deer blo- a doe blowing downwind of you. So you get one warning, quit blowing. All right, fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm a nice guy, but not that nice. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you're ru- you're ruining the woods right now. You're you're way too loud. Oh. This is supposed to be quiet. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. No, so definitely tack that on. I think that's you know that's a no brainer without a doubt. It's worth a hundred bucks. You're making the trip all the way out here anyway. What's now? How often are you spending behind glass? Like when you're out there glassing for these coos deer or mule deer? Like how much time do you think you're spending behind the glass? Uh, maybe binoculars or the spot and scope and like what type of binoculars are you using? Spend a lot of time. And that's, I think that's just pretty typical of uh, Western hunting is you're going to put a lot of time behind the glass because stuff will move in. There's a lot of times you're going to go over areas and, you know, you're going to go over with your binocs. Like right now I'm just using, you know, Vortex, uh, 10X. So that's like kind of, I sweep across that. If I'm real deep in the backcountry, I'll run a – I got a Vortex at 11 to 33 spotters. Well, and there's times I'll go over with my binoculars, not see anything. Boom, you know, you pull out the uh, the spotter, and sure enough, you'll catch an ear or you'll catch an antler or something of those sorts. You know, and there's really nothing else to do in the middle of the day, so you're just kind of out there looking in the shadows, seeing if something's bedded up. Um, but, yeah, it's once I know my areas and a couple different spots I would go to – you know, I, I, I try to centralize myself as best as I can, like up near a ridge where I could jump on one side, look around, spend a bunch of hours glassing, jump to the other side, just while I'm not moving that much. I mean, there's times, you know, midday, you're like, all right, I'm going to get up and just hoof it and try to find another spot. But a lot of time, a lot of time behind the glass. And I would say if you're coming out here, like plan on spending more time behind it than you don't, you know, like. A lot of guys, I think some of the issues they have is they move around too much. Mm. Like, oh, there's no deer here. Typically, there are deer there. You're just not seeing them right away. Yeah, that cool. makes that makes sense. I can see how that'd be. If you're, you're coming from the East Coast where you spend maybe 
uh, you know, 15 minutes every here and there, like scanning the woods with your binoculars, hunting whitetail, just, just cause you're bored. You know, I think the idea of sitting still behind glass for a long period of time, a half hour feels like an eternity. Probably I could see how that would quickly turn into like, Oh, I'm getting up and moving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, it, it is a mistake, you know, kind of a rookie mistake in the beginning, like, Oh, they're not here. Just get going. And then sure enough, you stand up and something blows out or, you know, you miss an opportunity. If it's good terrain and you're looking at it and you're like, man, there should be deer here. More than likely there are deer there. It's just very easy. They blend in so well. And it's not like typical whitetail where what, maybe you're looking out 50, 60 yards or, you know, maybe sometimes it's further. It's not too dense, but uh, you might be looking a mile away with a spotter. So it's really easy just to hop right over something. Well, Chase, if if you, unless you have any other gear questions, I kind of want to take this a different direction. No, that was it. I just wanted to get a a couple ideas on what to start looking at and maybe have to bring out whenever we head out there. Absolutely. That's that's some good info. Um, All right. So I want to end this because I feel like you're the, you're, you're going to be the guy that can just give us a, a really funny story. So I'm going to ask you, what was your most embarrassing moment hunting coos deer or mule deer in Arizona? Just that that one moment that you you sit back on after a really tough day and think, at least I didn't do that. Oh, good lord! There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! If you ask me, uh, what was a good story that you did something right? I might have one or two, but this one I have probably. <laughs> So they just kind of all blend together because I try to I cry myself to sleep and try to forget them. Um, <laughs> so probably the most recent was this this year, just a, a stupid rookie move on my end. I, uh, as I was saying earlier, I saw that a, a, a decent muley off in the distance. Good, you know, I did everything I thought I could do right. Wind shifted, not much you could do about that. Okay, they blow out. I continue on up the ridge. Get up a little further, and I'm just sitting there glassing, and sure enough, you know, a couple buck, couple coos buck come out. I'm sitting, waiting, sitting, waiting, and, and sure enough, a, a beauty, I mean a stunner, comes out there. I'm showing buddies afterwards, like, you didn't shoot that thing, dude, like, that's, that must have been and Crockett, you know, with your bow. So I see this thing out there, and I just, you know, I take it calm, okay, plan everything out, oh, the wind's doing this, uh, there's trees here, I'm going to go in and rattle this thing. Make the move, get in there, trying to get, you know, maybe about, I would say probably about 100 yards out from where they were hanging out last. I'm like, okay, get into the shade here, get tucked in. And then <laughs> that word right there, remember that, get tucked in, because that is the key to the story here. So I get myself in this bush. And I'm like, okay, he's going to come from over here. I'm tucked into this tree. Got these big honking antlers right in front of me. Just start smacking them together, rattling, rattling, rattling. Drop him down, get my bow ready, take a look at the line. I think he's going to come in. Sure enough, four minutes later, something around there, he comes directly at me. And I'm looking at this thing and getting nervous. He's all bladed out, had a dropper on him. I mean, this thing was stunning. So the heartbeat's going through, you know, through the roof at this point. Draw back my bow because there was only one spot that, like, his tree kind of was tucked in, like, you know, where he got behind. And I'm like, okay, this is the only point I can draw. I draw back. There was one direction he couldn't go, and sure as heck, that's the direction he went. And I could have avoided this whole issue if I wasn't so dumb and tucked myself in the tree. I was in the shade. Use your camo. Get in front of the tree. Give yourself great shooting lanes. He keeps coming at me. I mean, directly at me. I'm looking this thing in the eye. He doesn't see me. I'm just in the shade, and my arm starts shaking now. I'm at about 45 (laughs) seconds on the draw. 
This thing goes to the left of me where this tree is in between. I mean, it was like a Brillo pad. There's, you can barely see through this bush. He got no further than six feet away from me and looks over and just finally catches me and snorts, takes off her, you know, for the hills. And I'm just kicking myself here. Finally let down. The arrow goes flying because I can't freaking hold, you know, my bow back. I try to let down. Everything was flying out of my hands. This deer's just hightailing out of there. And I mean, just because of one stupid move. And I can't tell you how many times I've made that same mistake before. Just get yourself in front of, uh, you know, give yourself the shooting lanes. And I know nope, I was convinced I needed to tuck into this bush so he couldn't see me. Well, he couldn't see me, but I also couldn't shoot. So he won. Oh, it was brutal. Cried a... my way back to the truck after that one. <laughs> and I didn't tell many people about it. So uh, <laughs> I decided to reveal it on a podcast. Great idea. Now it's going out to millions. <laughs> Rubbing some salt in it, salt in an old wound here. Oh, no. Dude, that sounds like something I would do. For sure. Oh, man. Well, here's a question that uh, Walter always asks guests when they come on is if you could go back to your early hunting self and tell yourself one thing about hunting out in Arizona for coos deer or mule deer, what would it be? Slow down. And I think that's probably that would relate to just about any big game hunting. It's just slow everything down. It's so easy to get excited and be like, this is my only chance. I got to go in right now and get charged in and blow them out. And it's just slow everything down think it through when in doubt stop and don't move and just kind of like hang out regroup but slow everything down it's you know I, I've, I've blown way too many stocks from being way too aggressive and i think that's where you know really when i started seeing success is when i just said you know let's slow this down let's make a game plan here take your time going in and that's slow slowing down the planning process and that's certainly slowing down the stock taking your time going in there what i made a rule for myself after a while is three very slow steps stop and wait a minute like like a, literally a full minute three more steps stop and wait a minute and that opened up so many opportunities to me because whereas before i'm like oh i think they're over there and i would just go in and then boom sure enough i was wrong or or they had moved and you end up bumping them and you blow your stock gotten several deer just by doing that slow down method just three steps stop and then you look over and oh, there he is and you get a shot on him so yeah that's a uh, great advice i i hear that a lot it seems like so yeah i hear that walter we slow down <laughs> does that apply to podcasting when you're talking to like slow down the the, the speed of, of your voice no uh, i i think it's funny i always I, this that's perhaps the part that i listen the most intently to because You've got people who've spent their whole life doing something, and they're and they're they're boiling down everything into one piece of advice. And there's always such a beautiful array of of tips and tricks, but that one seems to be the most predominant. And I I think if I were to have to like pick one that is most often said in a variety of different ways, it seems like most hunters, and I bet you fishermen as well, need to slow down just a, a touch more and and live in that moment where you are and make sure you fully analyze what's around you. And I think that's, that's just so cool to hear. Yeah. And I think you could just even get that information by watching the animals and what they're doing. Right. Like they're constantly out there and they make a couple steps and then they're looking everywhere. They're looking for that lion to pop out. And you know, we, it, it gets harder and harder as the years go on. We get more frantic with our lives, you know, with social media and all this crazy stuff. We always need to be instantly entertained and it's getting tougher and tougher when we get into these hunting situations to slow ourselves down. 
we want that instant gratification. And I know that was the issue with me in the beginning is I, I want to get that kill. I got to get in there and get that kill right now. I wanted that instant gratification and it just wasn't happening for me. So I kind of had to go back to the drawing board and I'm sure I got this tip off of listening to some of the old timers out there saying this exact thing. And I mean, it's nothing, not saying anything that's, you know, a revelation here. It's just it's something I think time and again has worked for people. And as the years go on for all of us, it's just getting harder and harder to do. Well, dude, if you'll hang on one second, we, we have had you on the phone here for a little over an hour and uh, I'm going to wrap this up, but I want to chat with you afterwards. So, Hang tight. If yeah, you totally. Guys, cool. I, I know we told you we we're going to bring more content about going out west, especially for all of our East Coast or Midwest hunters that we sit around this time of year applying for tags or planning our hunts. I'm still planning on going to Colorado this year. So I, I'm amped to hear all these Western ideas and, and the differences between them, gear. So uh, if, if you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating or review, and uh, Whatever you do this weekend, make sure you get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. And until next time, y'all be good. just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.